Hey everyone, it's me, Sam Ashu. Thank you so much for being a listener. Can you believe this is the December 2023 episode of the podcast? I can't believe this year's coming to an end and this is the holiday season upon us already. I just want to say thank you. I sincerely hope that you have a safe and peaceful holiday season and that you get to spend a lot of time with family and away from work and relaxing. I'm very happy that you've come along this journey with us on the podcast, and I also hope that you join us at ebmedicine.net and consider becoming a subscriber. Now is a perfect time. In December, there is a special, meaning if you subscribe to any single one of the publications, you will get an additional three months for free. But why stop at any single publication? You can actually bundle all three. Get emergency medicine practice, pediatric emergency medicine practice, and evidence-based urgent care, all for one price and all of that CME every month. It's outstanding. And then, of course, there's the CME tracker with every single state identified and all of the requirements that you'll need. There's all the specialty courses, the trauma education, the pharmacy education, and then there are all the additional courses, the video programs, the laceration course, the EKG course. There's just a ton of content. So go check it all out at ebmedicine.net. And now let's dive into this month's episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. It is me, Sam Ashu, joined with my co-host. Hi, T.R. Eckler, back again. More stories, same channel. There we go. Today we are talking about the December 2023 Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice article titled Management of Pediatric Toxic Ingestions in the Emergency Department, authored by three people, Dr. Kanak, Dr. Tarango, and Dr. Liu, all three of which once again did an amazing job summarizing a probably encyclopedia full of information into one article that you can read and get four hours of CME credit for. So if you have a subscription, I highly encourage you to go and read it and get that CME. Meanwhile, today we're going to cover a lot of information. And it's important because, if you didn't know, each year in the United States, there are over 50,000 children aged less than five years old who present to the emergency department with concern for some kind of unintentional medication exposure. That is a very, very large number. And in 2018, which is the most up-to-date data we have from the U.S. state's poison control centers, there were 1.1 million exposures in patients aged less than 20, which accounted for about half of all exposures. And the pediatric exposures demonstrate this bimodal pattern where you get the unintentional exposures in young children and then the adolescents who perform intentional exposures usually suicide attempts or self-harm. And although the number seems very large, thankfully, the fatality rate is quite low. Children less than age six account for 1.6% of toxicologic fatalities. And patients who are less than 20 years to so the other end of that spectrum account for only 7% of the fatalities. So thankfully, we do a good job resuscitating them and keeping them alive. But unfortunately, there are a lot of these exposures. There is data from the American Association for Poison Control Centers, which says that the most common things that are ingested are cosmetics and personal care products. That's about 10%. Household cleaning substances, that's another 10%. Analgesics, that's 8%. Then dietary supplements, herbal supplements, homeopathic medications is about 7%. And foreign bodies and toys, miscellaneous category, is about 6%. Everything else is smaller. Prescription medications themselves are responsible for injury and fatality in children, especially the opioids, the sedative hypnotics, and cardiovascular drugs. So things to keep in mind. If you have small children in your home, lock up those medicines, even the over-the-counter medications. But don't forget about your cosmetics and your personal care products and especially your cleaning products. All of that stuff needs to be locked up. Get those little child locks on your kitchen cabinets and on your bathroom cabinets and store all your meds away. And if you take your children to grandma's house, make sure that they're very closely supervised and that grandma and grandpa have all of their medications put away out of reach. There is a good table, table one on page four, 
appropriately titled Medications Known for a High Risk for Fatality. So this is your meat of the article here. These are the things that are going to cause problems for children if they are ingested. And it includes all the things that are really not surprises for us, antiarrhythmics, antimalarials, something we don't see a lot of in the U.S., but with travelers and people going abroad, you might see this in your area. Antipsychotics, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, camphor, clonidine, opioids, methyl salicylates like oil of wintergreen, sulfonylureas, those medications for diabetes, and tricyclic antidepressants. All those are the high-risk fatality medications, a very important list of medications to know. A pretty classic list of one-pill killers that I always try to keep in my head as like things that I'm really making sure to ask about when I'm taking a history on these. Because the biggest aspect of this is just getting a good history from what medicines are around the house and just trying to get as much information as you can. Because this is a great time to trust no one and ask as many questions as you can and then run the tests that you have available to you and figure out what's next. So true. So true. And really like asking anyone and everyone. And you know, sometimes you just get a little nugget from some third party and you go, oh, okay, that clenches the diagnosis because mom and dad weren't aware, but grandma happened to see something. The literature on poisonous ingestions and toxicologic emergencies in pediatrics is really replete with case reports and case series and retrospective studies, which makes up a lot of the volume of evidence for all the things we're going to talk about today. There are some clinical guidelines that are getting better about using evidence-based recommendations instead of just expert consensus, but there's just not a gigantic volume in the pediatric population for these kinds of things. And so we do rely a lot on case reports and case series. If you don't have children and you didn't already know this, there is a normal developmental period where children put things in their mouths, the hand-to-mouth behavior. Everything goes in the mouth. That's pretty common. And that is responsible for that younger age distribution where children are more likely to be poisoned because they're just grabbing things out of curiosity and putting it in their mouth. There have been lots of things that we have done for consumer product safety to try and alleviate some of those things like child-resistant packaging and other containers that household cleaning items might come in, laundry pods come in, child-proof containers, those kinds of things. Some interventions were successful, some not so successful. Sometimes we add bitter agents to things so that people don't want to swallow them. And as soon as the child gets it in their mouth, they want to spit it out. Regardless, we are trying. <laughs> we, meaning here in the U.S., are trying. And there's always more that can be done, but it's not always successful. It's a typical behavior in that age group. As always, when we're talking about anything emergency medicine related, we're talking about the pre-hospital setting first and what can our EMS colleagues do before 911 is even initiated. If you are at home and you suspect there's a poisoning, regardless of whether or not you think it was a substantial poisoning, but if you're the parent, if you're a family member, just know you can always call the poison control center. They're highly accustomed to talking to people. 1-800-222-1222 is the national number. Call it anywhere, anytime, 24 hours a day, and you'll get connected to your local poison control center. I've never failed to impress nurses at every facility that I've been at when I'm like, let's call poison control. And they're like, what's the number? And I rattle it off. And they're like, how do you know that? Yes. And I was like, because it's the same number everywhere. <laughs> it's the only phone number that I know. <laughs> and it's good anywhere in the country. Absolutely. In my poor old man brain, that's one of the few phone numbers I actually think I can rattle off. Like my wife and poison control, that's all I got left. There you go. Call them. They will quickly guide you through whether or not this is a toxic ingestion. And they'll tell you about all the precautionary steps, things you can do at home, how you can identify these things. They'll read labels with you and access their database and search whatever it is you think your child might have ingested. But it's not just for children. If you're listening to this, also just know you can call the Poison Control Center for any ingestion. It doesn't have to be just a child. Today, we're talking about children. When it comes to pre-hospital care, a vast majority of this is information gathering. So if you are the paramedic or medic who's arriving at the scene, it is vastly helpful to grab anything in the way of pill bottles, anything and everything that might have been the contaminant, getting an appropriate history from whoever's on scene about what they saw or think they see, what this person might have been exposed to. Keep in mind that it's not just always a pill. It could be spray bottles. It could be items in the garage. We could be talking about pesticides. There are lots of things that children can get into, especially in houses where 
they're curious. It's the first time there. Grandpa and grandma have a bunch of chemicals in the garage. Who knows what children can get into? So this is a, a very important point where our EMS colleagues can help us gather that history because all these people are not going to be present. But also EMS colleagues have access to the scene. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? Sometimes can clue you in to what this person has been exposed to. If there are pill fragments, that's a helpful piece to bring in as well. Even if it's just part of a pill, sometimes it can help us identify it and poison control can guide us through that as well. Just know that there's a vast majority of information you can gather from the scene and that's very helpful. Good quality images of pill bottles can also be obtained. If you can't bring all of them, you can take a quick photograph of them or if someone on the scene has photographs of a, a pill bottle that might have been involved, they can always text it to you or send it to you, you can bring that into the ED with the patient. And poison control is not just there to guide family and people at home, but can also guide EMS systems. So oftentimes the people at home have made contact with poison control and they can even speak with medics if there's going to be a long transport time, whether or not charcoal is indicated in this kind of scenario, whether or not you have it, what kind you have, should you mix it with something, they're available to help you with all of that information as you're performing your assessment. And speaking of assessment, there's a great table there on page five, table three, the differential diagnosis of common toxidromes. So these are toxic ingestion syndromes or typical ways in which children and adults will present depending on what it is they've taken. That's a great table there. It guides you through everything from the anticholinergic toxidrome, cholinergic crisis through hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia, opioid toxidrome, sedation and some of the physical findings you might see. So if you're the first person on scene, you're going to do your airway, breathing, and circulation. You're going to check a glucose, especially if the person's altered. You're going to obtain IV access if you need it and the person isn't stable. And then depending on what it is you think they might have been exposed to, certainly EMS colleagues can administer things like naloxone, begin IV fluid resuscitation. If the person is completely obtunded and absent airway reflexes, they can intubate if necessary. They get lots of things you can do as part of your initial assessment that's very, very important in getting this person stable and then bringing them to the ED. Also, safety first, always. If you're the EMS person, you got to make sure that you are not being exposed while you're there. So if there is some kind of skin or dermal exposure, you got to make sure to keep yourself safe. Just to add to that a little bit, I think just as you said, for pre-hospital, whatever they can bring you, whether that's pictures or the pills themselves, it's so much easier when you're in the controlled setting of the ER to take your time and go through and identify the pills based on the shape and the color. There's a number of good programs to do that. But if EMS can provide you with the medicines that you're worried about dealing with, that makes a huge difference. And then like you said, any pictures of the bottles or the, the things that you have, it makes a big difference for poison control, exactly what the formulation is, because the contents of those bottles, the pesticides and things like that vary from even within a brand, a single brand, there's different ingredients in each one. Yes. And then having come from New York City, where we had a lot of fear about preparation for poisonings and different kind of nerve agents and different things that could be used, it's really good to have a sense of that as a doctor when if someone's coming in, they're like, oh, we've got something. We think it could be this kind of poisoning. You need to know whether or not you need to stop and decontaminate that person before you come in because there's nothing that really crushes your emergency room, like having to decontaminate an entire pod or an entire ER when that happens. We had that happen once in our ER recently, and it really just throws a whole wrench in the whole day because now your whole staff needs to go get new scrubs and take a shower, and it really stops everything in its tracks. So if you can stop that at the door and get it cleaned up, it keeps everything moving a lot better. Yeah, it seems like a giant inconvenience to slow everything down and decontaminate one patient before you bring them into the emergency department. You got to put them through some kind of shower on the outside and then find clothes for them to wear. And somebody's got to get in there and make sure that they're well rinsed off and that they're fully decontaminated before you bring them in. But honestly, the inconvenience of just that one patient is far outweighed by the inconvenience of having to decontaminate your entire department and multiple other patients. So just, just get it done quickly, and it's just a routine part of that initial stabilization. We did a great simulation case on this in residency because it's really great to make everyone stop and think, oh, geez, because especially let's say it's the first or second patient coming in from a bigger event and you don't really quite know, it's great if you real quick can go, wait a minute, we need to be decontaminating all these people before you have a department full up. Absolutely. The rest of the initial stabilization follows the pediatric advanced life support guidelines. So airway, breathing, circulation when it comes to airway and their respiratory status. Certainly 
early intubation can be necessary depending on what the ingestion is. Sometimes it's a caustic ingestion and there's potential for rapid development of airway damage and airway swelling. And so in those scenarios, early intubation is necessary. Respiratory status can certainly be compromised from sedation and seizures and metabolic derangements, cardiac toxicity. They can come in tachycardic. They can be hypotensive and poorly perfused. So your normal stabilization you're doing in real time as you're trying to ascertain what it is that they were exposed to when you perform your history, in addition to asking about what they had access to, maybe what they had in their mouth, what someone saw, it becomes critically important to know exactly, as you mentioned, the, the preparation that they ingested. Is it something long-acting or enteric-coated, or is it something short-acting? Because multiple drugs come in both of those forms, and a long-acting preparation can be in their system for a very long time. And sometimes the antidotes we're giving aren't going to last that long. So it makes a huge difference for us for disposition as well. Do they need to be in the ICU for monitoring? Do they need to be on the floor? Can they just go home? And that's a, a critical piece of the history that needs to be obtained. We're accustomed to doing this in the ED, but how much is left in the pill bottle? When was the pill bottle filled? Is the person who normally takes the medication taking it daily on, on a routine schedule? Or is it something they just take every now and then? So really they have no idea how much was in the bottle before the uh, child got into it. And then if it's an over-the-counter medication, there are so many combination meds out there. All of It seems like everything has Tylenol in it. And it seems like no one knows the generic name for Tylenol. So we're talking about acetaminophen. It starts with an A and then goes to a C. That's acetaminophen. That is the generic name for Tylenol. And I swear it's in everything. So that's one of the medications we'll talk about later in this podcast for specific therapies, but it's important to know that it's in the product that was ingested and important for you to take a look at the packaging to see exactly which formulation because they say they take uh, a decongestant. There are multiple decongestants with the same name made by the same company, but with different formulations, some AM, some PM, some long acting, some maximum strength. And so you really need to know what is actually in the one that was taken. And I find this is a great time to pull out the phone and be like, all right, like, where did you get it from? What store? Because then they'll stock certain kinds. And if you search that store's website, you can show them a couple. It, it takes you maybe 30 seconds or a minute, but that 30 seconds or a minute buys you a ton of information that really guides your treatment down the road. Yeah. And then I also find it helpful to make sure that you have a certain amount of distrust for the history that you're taking. <laughs> so, you know, the person may be 100% sure that what the child got into was ibuprofen tablets. And you might show them the picture and you go, yes, that's it. That's the bottle. And I will personally still check a Tylenol level on that person because I have been burned before when the person says, hey, this was absolutely ibuprofen. And then you get that Tylenol level back and go, Did you, this is critically high. You're sure it wasn't Tylenol. Said, no, it wasn't Tylenol. Said, Could it have been acetaminophen. You go, oh, yeah, isn't that the generic name for ibuprofen, right? That, that's the same thing as Motrin, isn't it? <laughs> so I have had that happen before. Just be careful that the people we're asking are usually not medically trained. And so you have to take everything with a grain of salt. In these cases, I think you take a great history, but if anybody gives you any suspicion, it's an EKG, a glucose, a Tylenol, and a salicylate, and then I probably do it again in four hours. I had a child brought in the other day by a medically trained family, four-year-old who got into some of their meds they carry for camping and emergencies and a normal accident because kids get into everything. And the first round of labs were negative and they were like, well, maybe she didn't get into anything. I was like, let's just check one more time. And didn't her salicylate level pop the second time around. And so then we're just going to keep repeating and seeing. And, and then you got to make sure that then you get in touch with your poison control people and you make sure that you've got everything under control. That's right. One test begets another, right? It's ne it never hurts in these situations to, to check some things, check, it again. check them again a little later, and just That's make right. sure you've got as much as you need. So true. Another important thing to keep in mind is abuse and neglect. So those things go hand in hand with exposures. If the child is neglected and not being watched, there are other things you might see on physical examination that might lead you down that pathway. If the child is being abused, then that can sometimes mimic a toxic exposure there's a lot of nonspecific findings when we talk about the exam we'll get into in a minute, especially things like altered mental status and uptendation, and that's very nonspecific. And so you just have to keep in the back of your mind that this might be abuse-related so that you don't miss it. When it comes to the physical examination, 
The table I referenced before on page five, the differential diagnosis for common toxidromes includes those physical findings that you might see in some of the more common ingestions. There are things like elevated temperature, which can be from salicylate ingestion, ironically. You take too much aspirin and you get a fever. Sympathomimetic or anticholinergic substances, or even an infection, which can sometimes look like a toxic exposure. Tachycardia is something you might see, and that can be anticholinergic or sympathomimetic, or it can be related to dehydration or sepsis. So bradycardia can be with hypotension, which suggests that it's a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker or clonidine or digoxin. Blood pressure can be elevated if it's sympathomimetic. Respiratory rate can be abnormal, and it just depends there. It can be sympathomimetic or aspirin-induced. And decreased respiratory rate can be from opioids or sedative ingestion. So lots of abnormalities you might see in just your physical examination and your initial vital signs can point you in the right direction. I thought it was actually a good suggestion that you can try to examine the child in the parent's lap, assuming that they're not in any severe distress. It's a very comforting place to examine a child. And so sometimes it's easier to pick up on inappropriate tachycardia in that setting if they're not afraid and they're comfortable, but their vital signs are still abnormal. Some toxic congestions like ethanol, methyl salicylates, camphor can be identified when you get close to the child just from the odor of it. So that can help. And then looking at the head, neck, and mouth can sometimes help you look for caustic substances, but also can be signs of abuse too. And looking in their mouth, you might see pill fragments and you might see injuries from a caustic ingestion there as well. On physical exam of the abdomen, you might notice decreased bowel sounds. Interestingly, intussusception should be in the differential diagnosis. And the authors made a special point of saying that intussusception should be considered when examining the abdomen since children can present primarily with altered mental status that can be mistaken for a case of toxic ingestion. So something to keep in the back of your head if you see an obtunded or ill-appearing child, that this might actually be not a toxic ingestion at all. The neurological exam is pretty routine. So looking at pupils, are they sluggish? Are they midriatic? Are they dilated? That can sometimes guide you in the right direction. Does the person have tremors or tremulousness, which can be from hypoglycemia or hypocalcemia or lithium ingestion? Are there seizures or seizure activity, which can be secondary even from electrolyte derangements or ingestion of anti-diabetic agents that cause severe hypoglycemia? Salicylates again, uh, bupropion, isoniazid, anticholinergic agents, tramadol, uh, lithium, all these things can result in seizures. And then there can be some subtle mental status changes that are not obvious to us, but mom or dad might pick up on them. Like this person is slightly more sedate or doesn't seem right, seem more confused, and they're not usually this way. Those are important things to listen to when the caregiver is telling you this is not their normal mental status, because it may not be obvious to us when examining someone who's less than five years old and it's three o'clock in the morning, you might think, oh, they're just sleepy. The only thing I would add for physical exam, I, I love the idea of stripping the kid down. Because I think whenever you smell something funny, I'm always going looking for funny patches or something else that kind of explains where that smell is coming from. But I also think it's important to look for bruising, not just for the non-accidental trauma, but in this day and age, there's so much of a prevalence of anticoagulants that are so available for treatment of AFib and everything else, or to like super warfarins that we use for poisoning rodents and things like that. I really want to make sure that there's not bruising that's there that makes me want to do a more detailed coagulation study on this kid to see exactly what's going on. Yeah, great point. When it comes to initial testing in the ED, if you're dealing with undifferentiated altered mental status or an ill-appearing child, this is not really an opportunity to save money by ordering less testing. But some of the highlights, some of the important things would be things like checking a blood glucose, which seems obvious. Hypoglycemia can cause altered mental status. And that doesn't tell you what the toxic ingestion was, but it certainly is something you can fix rapidly. Hypoglycemia itself can be seen in sulfonylurea or alcohol ingestion in children, so something to keep in mind there. Also can be seen in calcium channel blocker ingestion. ECGs, we talked about getting an ECG, making sure that they don't have some kind of dysrhythmia, prolongation of their QRS complex or their QTC interval, because that can happen from certain agents. The blood gas is still debatable. There is some data that says it can be helpful in identifying acid-base disturbances and maybe electrolyte levels in an ill-appearing patient, but the authors cited one retrospective study of 595 patients who showed no change in management. 
even with the blood gas information. So it's one of those tests where if you really want it, you think it's going to help you by all means get it, but don't feel obligated that you have to in that scenario. I think most of these blood gases, if you're going that way, can start off as a venous blood gas. And then if things are markedly abnormal, then you can get to the arterial. But I think you need to get your anion gap and get your osms calculated versus the real number that actually comes out in the serum and then figure out where you're at. But I don't think you need to be sticking arteries in these kids on, on most of the times. Yeah. yeah. And then pregnancy testing, if they're 12 or older and they're menstruating, this is just routine. Everyone gets a pregnancy test. The authors made a special point of pointing out that one in 2,500 pregnant patients require hospitalization for attempted suicide with 86% of those attempts being by toxic ingestion. So checking the pregnancy test is important for multiple reasons because it can also guide you down that pathway and it should be a part of your routine testing if the person is 12 or over. Chemistry and osmolarity testing, you're going to get it. You're going to be looking for that anion gap. You're going to be looking for those osmoles. There is another great table, page 7, anion gap and osmolar gap calculations. If you don't know how to calculate it, it's there. But it also gives you the etiologies. So it runs you through the mud piles acronym and all the things that can give you osmolar gaps. Again, you can probably pull this out in your pocket calculator or MD Calc and get that same information as well. Just make sure you have that reference somewhere. It's just important to remember that the serum osms that you see on your normal labs are calculated. They're not measured. So you've got to order a serum osms. I went through this the other day with a hand sanitizer ingestion, and I had my resident going through and calculating serum osms and fluorescing some urine. And it was interesting to go through and try to figure out what alcohol might have been in this gentleman's system. But it's important to make sure you've got both those numbers, not just one. And then when it comes to medication-specific labs, we're going to start with acetaminophen. That's the generic name for Tylenol. Again, lots of people don't recognize this to be Tylenol, but it is important, and it is in lots of over-the-counter medications, and it is an increasing cause of morbidity and mortality in the general population. So a very important agent to know about. There is the nomogram upon which you're going to check their level. Levels for this should be drawn four hours after ingestion, but not sooner because the nomogram itself is just not effective in telling you the toxic level until four hours have passed. If you don't know the timing, then you can draw it immediately. Just know you're going to have to repeat it and track that level over time to make sure it doesn't exceed the toxic amount. And the nomogram is there on page 10. It's figure one, the rumac matthew nomogram, which everybody's accustomed to seeing if you've ever treated a Tylenol overdose, but it's something you have to be intentional about testing for. And sometimes it's just a co-ingestant. They took an opiate and they're sedated and they have respiratory insufficiency, but it happens to be oxycodone with acetaminophen, one of those combination tablets, or Norco, which is hydrocodone plus acetaminophen. So it's an important thing to keep in mind. Salicylate is another level that you might consider getting. There are some exam findings that might guide you in that direction. Uh, tachypnea, hyperpnea, they're breathing rapidly and salicylate ingestion, uh, which can be mixed really, especially if there was a mixed ingestion with opioids and other agents. So you can't be 100% reliant on looking for the physical exam abnormalities. And all of those things that we normally see with an acute ingestion are not seen in chronic ingestions. And so you have to keep in mind, are they always on this medication? Having been in multiple hospitals, not every salicylate level comes back at the same level. Different labs will report it in different concentrations. Our lab at our shop reports it in micrograms per ml. The, most of the data and some of the, the tables for salicylate poisoning that you'll see and some of the nomograms they have are going to be in milligrams per deciliter. So it's important to know what your lab is and then to basically go through, and there's a number of different websites that'll let you do this, to change your concentration to make sure that when you're looking at a nogram or, or what levels are going you need to be concerned about in salicylates, that you have the right concentration you're comparing to. Because for ours, it's actually 10 times less. The number we get is only about one-tenth of that is what the real salicylate level is when you start looking at other levels. Yeah, know your units for sure. There is some imaging that can be indicated depending on whether or not the ingestion might cause a bezoar. Salicylates, carbamazepine, those things have been known to cause bezoars or those giant balls that build up in the stomach and can cause pretty erratic absorption as well. 
which might lead you to repeat the level and then repeat it again. And you might notice some ups and downs. So the advice there is to continue checking them regularly until you get a definitive downward trend. And then depending on what it is that they ingested, you can sometimes see iron sulfate, calcium carbonate, potassium chloride, those kinds of pill fragments you might see on x-ray, depending on the skill of the person who's looking at the films. So there is an indication sometimes for imaging. Electrocardiography, we talked about already, but things you might see on that test include bradycardia, arrhythmias. There are specific things like beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and digoxin as well as some alpha-2 agonists like clonidine and cholinergic agents, all of which are going to give you EKG abnormalities. Sometimes it's just mild, a subtle bradycardia, uh, a subtle tachycardia. There are some characteristic ECG findings for digoxin that you will see, but digoxin is the great mimicker, so it can give you everything really from bradycardia to AB blockade to lots of PVCs. So it's a difficult one to diagnose by ECG alone. And if there is any concern that there was a dig exposure, then there is a dig level that you could get in that scenario. There are medications that block fast sodium channels, including things like carbamazepine, propranolol, and some of the local anesthetics, which can widen the QRS interval, and they can block potassium efflux channels. And that's really all just to let you know that can cause prolonged QTC intervals. Tricyclics are also known to have that effect on sodium channels and can give you some significant QRS widening. So if there's any history of an ingestion of that sort, by all means, get that ECG. Just know that a normal ECG doesn't rule out anything. An abnormal ECG could help guide you, but a normal ECG by itself is not going to rule out anything. So we get it. We put these children on telemetry. We put the stickers all over them, hook them up to a monitor. That is just a normal routine part of the evaluation. I always try to keep this in mind with Benadryl because Benadryl can act like these sodium channel blockers. And it's probably the most prevalent and easily accessible for all these things. Comes in a nice flavored liquid form for kids. So I would tell you that these kind of patients get serial EKGs for me. And I make sure that I'm looking at the same EKG, not something that's had a recalculation of their intervals, depending on which program you're looking at it in. But I like to look at the same paper EKG every hour or even more frequently if I'm pretty worried about them just to make sure that nothing's changed underneath me. QRS and the QTC are staying the same. Yes, yes, great advice. There is urine toxicologic screening, which can be done. Just know, as we've talked about before on this podcast, that these things are very commonly false positive and false negative. You can't really rely on them. They can help guide you. And a child who's opioid naive, if you get a positive screen, there's a good chance that there was some kind of ingestion there. It doesn't tell you what was the only agent. It doesn't tell you how much. And it doesn't tell you which one. And it certainly doesn't tell you that's all there is to it. And if it's negative, it doesn't tell you there wasn't one. So just know that there are severe limitations. There are comprehensive or definitive toxicology studies that can be performed on urine, but all of that is usually send out testing. It's not going to help you in the emergency department. If the person is being admitted to an ICU setting, you might consider something like that, depending on the turnaround time. And so it might come back in, in time to help the people in the ICU, but it's not going to help you in the ED to do any kind of comprehensive or definitive urine testing. I took a lot away from this section that not all antifreeze has fluorescein in it. And therefore, you can fluoresce a lot of urines. But even when they did a study of this, physicians were not very good at identifying fluorescence in urine, which was very similar to my resident's experience because he said, I can't really tell if it's fluorescing. And I said, why don't you go fluoresce a few more urines? So he basically went around the department, went in every room and was fluorescing all the urines to try to figure out if it was fluorescing or not. And he decided he didn't think it was, but he wasn't really sure. And at the end of the day, for us, I think that had reassured me a little. We were still going to see the labs. But it, it gives me even more pause about this to know that not all antifreeze even has the fluorescein in it. Yes, yes. That was a, it was an interesting thing to read. And honestly, I wasn't aware that not all antifreeze had the fluorescein in it. So that's good to know. We talk about that a lot, especially on board exams. And, and apparently, it's not a very sensitive or specific test. So just one more thing to put in the maybe helpful bucket, but doesn't actually exclude anything. <laughs> Get all the data you can, be reassured by nothing. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's like completely paranoid. Treatment. So when we get into treatment for toxic ingestions, decontamination is important. With the exception of hemodialysis, there is limited utility 
and sometimes there is harm seen with certain decontamination approaches. So things like activated charcoal, whole bowel irrigation, or gastric lavage can actually be harmful to patients. If you're going to do stuff like that, you really should talk to poison control, maybe even get on the phone with their toxicologist and just have a conversation before you get into some of that really invasive therapy. We start with hemodialysis because that's one of those things which can be critically helpful, but also because if you have one of those kinds of ingestions that can be cleared by hemodialysis, you may have to transfer that patient to a center where pediatric nephrology is available. In most centers, I would say that's not a service that's available, and you're looking at some pediatric specialty hospitals. The most common agents that require dialysis are lithium, salicylates, and ethylene glycol. There are some additional agents that the authors make a specific point of saying are, are well-suited to elimination by hemodialysis, which include things like methanol, valproic acid, isopropyl, and theophylline. And then there are some extra ones where hemodialysis might be an amenable approach, but you really need to have that conversation with a nephrologist, and that's when you're getting into things like ethanol and metformin. So lots of things might be able to be filtered out through hemodialysis, and a conversation with the peds nephro guys is going to be important, but most importantly, because you have to transfer that person, and that takes a while. One caveat I would throw in here that I think having been a lot of places, it's worth figuring out is if you're ordering a lab, we've talked about a lot of important ones here, digoxin, lithium, valproic acid. Some of these labs are going to be done very quickly, and some of them are going to be send-offs. And it's important to have that conversation early on with your lab of, hey, what can we do quickly, and how quickly can you do it, and what if this is a send-off? Because if it's got to be sent off, then you need to know that you don't have it, and you're not going to be able to get it, and then you need to communicate that to Poison to see what else you can do to figure it out. Yeah. Sometimes it's not even a send-off. It's just an 8 a.m. lab when the morning person comes in who knows how to use that machine. (laughs) But that's what I'm saying is it's good to have that sense of the timeline of when are you going to get more of these answers? What time are they going to roll in? And when are you going to have a chance to change your approach? Yeah. I actually remember once calling the lab in the middle of the night for a gram stain on CSF and having the tech tell me, yeah, I don't know how to do that. It's going to have to wait till 8 a.m. And I went, oh my goodness, (laughs) what was the point of going through that lumbar puncture? So here's some antibiotics because I don't know what you have and I'm not going to know it till after 8 a.m. So did you have to send it back up and you just stained it and and looked at it under the microscope in the ER? That's a great idea. (laughs) Send me some gram stain. I'll do it myself. (laughs) That's right. I'll pull out the textbook. Is Is this gram positive? Is this a coxi? Okay. Other methods of decontamination, activated charcoal is something that historically has been used, but is actually decreasing in its evidence of utility, meaning we're using it less and less. Activated charcoal binds pretty poorly and variably to alcohols, iron, lithium, acids, alkali, arsenic, and other heavy metals. So it's currently thought to be used in only about 0.5% of pediatric cases. That's 2018 data. So it's not used very often. But there are still occasional times when it might be helpful. Typically, that's acute ingestions less than an hour with something known to be amenable to charcoal clearance And that's something the Poison Control Center is very good at helping guide you through. And it also has to come in the setting of someone who is awake and alert with intact airway reflexes and not at risk for aspiration because the aspiration of the charcoal itself can cause severe pneumonitis and that can be life-threatening. So before you go giving something, you have to know what the side effects of that medication are. And charcoal has a pretty significant one if it's accidentally aspirated. And when we're talking about children, that can certainly be disastrous. So just know that the Poison Control Center is very good about guiding who should get the charcoal, if at all. The dosing is here, but also, of course, they'll be happy to give it to you through the Poison Control Center. It's one to two grams per kilo orally, up to a maximum of 50 grams. And activated charcoal with a cathartic is not recommended in children because of the increased risk for fluid and electrolyte imbalances. So even though you might be accustomed to giving it in adults, activated charcoal with sorbitol or something of that sort, you're going to have to use a different preparation for the children and mix it with something that's going to make them want to drink it. (laughs) Cola, chocolate milk, fruit juice, something that's going to make it tolerable, which... Yeah, I just, I'm just happy. I'm Activated not charcoal and chocolate milk. Sounds like the new health kick that's coming mm-hmm. down the street. <laughs> well, it beats the next item up for bid, which is whole yeah. bowel irrigation. <laughs> Ooh. 
So whole bowel irrigation involves typically putting in some kind of nasogastric tube into the stomach and just flooding the stomach with irrigation solution. It's definitely contraindicated in patients with compromised airway, intestinal obstruction, ileus, bowel perforation, any one of those clinical settings. And it can be considered in potentially toxic ingestions the things like extended release or enteric coated preparations that are going to be around that you just need to eliminate immediately. It's also used actually in body stuffers uh, when they ingest packets of illicit drugs. So that's one way to clear them out of the intestinal tract quickly, but certainly not something you're going to use regularly. Or I can't even think, I don't think I've ever performed this on a child ever. I have had to do it on an adult for drug packets before, but not ever on a child definitely default to the toxicologist of poison control before you try something like that. And then there is historically in the literature discussions about gastric lavage. Again, this involves putting a large bore, like an Ewall type tube down into the stomach and just lavaging or irrigating the stomach with saline solution or water to try and get pill fragments and other material out. It's just something we don't do. The literature was originally in animals and human volunteers, which I cannot imagine volunteering for, but even that showed variable ability to remove toxins and the clinical utility is just lacking. We don't do it. And lastly, for decontamination is Ipecac or serum of Ipecac. And the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology, and the European Association of Poison Control Centers do not recommend the administration of Ipecac to induce emesis. There have been some good randomized control trials which have showed that the Ipecac itself can delay charcoal administration, can increase vomiting, and can prolong ED length of stay. There are just better things to do at our disposal, so we don't use it. And then hopefully, once you've identified the specific toxin, you can pull up this article and run through some of the most important ones listed, starting with acetaminophen. Acetaminophen toxicity occurs because it accumulates N-acetyl-P-benzoquinonamine, which is the NAPQI or NAPQI. It's a metabolite detoxified by glutathione, and if you're interested in that biochemistry, you can certainly read it in the article. Just know that it's a toxic ingestion. You have to use the nomogram at four hours, and then it's easily treatable. The problem with it is that most people who have acutely ingested it are asymptomatic, or they might have some nausea and some vomiting and some malaise, and then they become relatively symptom-free, and it's not until you have the disastrous complication of hepatic failure that you realize what you've missed, and by then it's too late. So we have a very low threshold for starting treatment in these patients, and if it's a child, you're going to get that level. If they're on the nomogram, you're just going to begin therapy. And therapy is with N-acetylcysteine, which can be given orally or can be given IV, thank goodness, because orally it smells terrible like sulfur and rotten eggs, and it can be a challenge to get that into a pediatric patient. The dosing is all there for you in the article, but again, it'll be in any drug reference that you're using. Just know that it requires repeat doses and that you're typically providing these over a prolonged course, 21 to 72 hours until their lab values are normalizing, their acetaminophen levels are undetectable. If they had elevation of their liver function, those have to come down below 1,000. If you're trending coagulation studies, just know that administration of N-acetylcysteine by itself has been shown to increase the PTINR value, and so that can skew those results a little bit. You're still going to be looking for that level to come down to normal before you discontinue treatment. And depending on the preparation they took, especially if it was an extended release one, that can take a while. So those people are being admitted to the hospital for two to three days of therapy. Yes. Alcohol ingestions can present with hypoglycemia, especially in children. So just be aware that may be the presenting symptom. These can be ethanol, methanol, and ethylene glycol, which we see in things like windshield washer fluid and antifreeze, as we've talked about. But also, as you mentioned in your case, in hand sanitizer, especially since COVID, we got a plethora of hand sanitizer everywhere and we ran out of ethanol-containing gels and started using methanol-containing gels and people ingested these. So you have to be aware that it can be a different kind of alcohol and you're going to be looking for all of those manifestations on examination, but then you've got to have some kind of treatment. And there was a time when people gave alcohol as treatment. 
which I suppose is still an option, although in pediatrics, there are some excellent other options. Fomepazole is an option to give a pediatric patient. And again, the dosing is there in the article. In cases of ethylene glycol or methanol poisoning with significant acidosis or end organ dysfunction, hemodialysis is actually indicated in conjunction with fomepazole. And so you've got multiple therapies you can initiate. And again, if they're that critically ill and they need dialysis, you're going to be looking at sending them to a pediatric center. Blindness is the other indication for dialysis that I, I took away from. That, that was really one of those elegant things. If you have an ingestion that comes in blind, that's my first thought is methanol and now do I need dialysis? Let's get the fomepazole on board. Do I have it? Do I not? There's so much about these things where you got to think, where am I now? And then where am I heading? And do I have enough to be able to manage that here? Or does it need to go somewhere else? Yeah. And I think that's, like you said, great time to talk to poison control. Great time to talk to your next center down the road of, do you want this kid now? Or do you want me to keep trying to figure it out here? Perfect. Anticholinergic agents are next on the list. And there are multiple substances that can exhibit anticholinergic qualities. Things like tricyclic antidepressants, Benadryl, as you mentioned, Jimson weed atropine, scopolamine, carbamazepine, among lots of others. Typically, the symptoms are midriasis, decreased urination, decreased salivation, dry mucous membranes, hypoactive bowel sounds. That's the kind of toxidrome with tachycardia and fever or elevated body temperature and delirium and hallucinations. Interestingly, physostigmine is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor that can cross the blood-brain barrier and help during these things, but it's actually not being manufactured anymore and can be hard to find, which I wasn't aware of until the authors mentioned it in the article. You ever give this? Because this used to be in the coma cocktail, right? What EMS would give as part of the patient found down kind of thing. Yeah, actually, I did give it once. It was a number of years ago, and it was actually in a Benadryl overdose because we weren't really right. sure. And the person was completely hallucinating and getting very agitated. And so we tried... We didn't have very much of it at the time, and we it, it resulted in enough to prevent inducing a coma and intubating the patient, which is my only other option, and they ended up in the ICU. It does have multiple side effects, as the authors listed there, including causing seizures, which is one of those things that you're trying to prevent in someone in this specific instance. It can cause bronchospasm, bradycardia, and lastly, it's not manufactured anymore, and it was only being made by one company and that's been discontinued. So really getting it is a big problem. And now it's mostly just supportive therapy. And so those people who we could have kept from intubating before, we're now just going to induce coma because they just get too agitated and combative and the restraints are just not working. Beta blockers, another class there of medications that you need to know about can cause bradycardia, hypotension, and central nervous system depression. So you might think you're dealing with something like an opioid overdose when actually it's a beta blocker overdose. Treatment is just supportive initially, so IV fluids, vasopressors for hypotension, glucagon can be successful in treating these, and there actually is limited evidence now that the approach to calcium channel blocker toxicity might work for beta blocker toxicity too. Hyperinsulinemia and euglycemia, so therapy with high-dose insulin and sugar can help in this kind of scenario as well. And the dosing is there in the article for you if you're considering doing that because your supportive care is not working. And it's 10 times what you're used to giving for insulin. So you got to be pretty sure what you're doing because everybody from nursing to pharmacy is going to have questions about the orders you're putting in. So it's a good thing to basically make sure you've got that history that the child could have had access to a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker and make sure you and poison and everybody are on the same page because it's one of those things that you've got to make sure everybody says yes and then you start it because it's a big number of insulin yeah. units to put into it. Yeah, one unit per kilo, followed by half a unit per kilo per hour with all the glucose necessary to keep them from becoming hypoglycemic. This is some serious critical care, and you really want to make sure your pharmacist is on board when you're ordering something like this. And your PICU. And your PICU, that's right. <laughs> Calcium channel blockers, similarly, they're an antihypertensive agent. Things like amlodipine and verapamil and nifedipine and diltiazem. Grandparents and parents are on these medications routinely for lots of reasons, and children can certainly get into them. They do cause hypotension, bradycardia, heart blocks, and hyperglycemia, which can sometimes be the thing that indicates that it's a calcium channel blocker overdose. And then treatment, again, is IV crystalloid, vasopressor support, and the high-dose insulin therapy that we mentioned before with the beta blockers. 
cholinergic agents give you the sludge mnemonic symptoms, salivation, lacrimation, urination, diarrhea, gastrointestinal distress, and emesis, and dumbbells, which is another one, diarrhea, urination, meiosis, bradycardia, bronchospasm, emesis, lacrimation, lethargy, salivation, and seizures. Those are the symptoms you're looking for with cholinergic agents. And these are going to be things like organophosphates, where skin decontamination becomes very important, especially for EMS personnel and when they bring them into the ED. Pesticides, chemical warfare can certainly be involved. Anticholinesterase medications like rivastigmine, donepazil, and galantamine are used in patients who have Alzheimer's disease. So those are high-risk scenarios where you have a grandparent, say, who has Alzheimer's disease and doesn't have the capacity to know to put away their medication, and now you're bringing over grandchildren who can get into them, that can be particularly problematic. So you might see this, and atropine is the treatment of choice and is going to have to be repeated, just a lot of it. Certainly, if they're seizing, you can give benzodiazepines, but atropine is the mainstay. Prelidoxime does inhibit the aging of anticholinesterase, and that enzymatic reaction uh, is beneficial, especially in this scenario with people who have cholinergic crisis, but it may not be something that's available to you at your pharmacy, and so atropine usually is. Just know that that's going to take repetitive dosing. Always worthwhile to reach out to your EMS and your kind of local disaster people, because sometimes there's stockpiles of this stuff that's sitting around. And I would tell you, that's always something that I like to keep in mind of if we don't have it, not necessarily do I have to transfer the patient, but does somebody else have it that I can get it and then I can start it and then I can transfer, especially if you're in a rural place waiting to transfer somebody like this, what other resources do you have that you can bring in and, and use? Yeah, that's a great point. That's a very important point. Definitely reach out to your local EMS agencies because that disaster management requires them to stockpile this stuff. So if you run out or are going to, they usually have more. Digoxin is another one of those agents you have to keep in mind that can cause some pretty lethal toxicity. It does, like we mentioned before, cause all kinds of EKG manifestations, but clinically, it's going to give you bradycardia or heart block, hypotension and hyperkalemia, and the ECG changes that go along with those. Classically, it's going to give you some kind of AV block, frequent PVCs, and ventricular tachycardia, depending on the, how bad it is but really it can present with anything on the ECG. It's important to know that you can get a DIG level and that it is treated with DIGBIND or the antibody that will bind digoxin, and that's indicated for a specific serum level. So you got to get that level, see what it is, see if the person's symptomatic, and that guides whether or not you're going to give and how much of the DIGBIND you're going to give. And again, poison control, more than happy to walk you through all of that. If they're bradycardic, you can certainly give them atropine. You can pace them just to help them as you're looking to treat the overdose. And those therapies do work. If they have dysrhythmias, including things like ventricular tachycardia, you can treat those with lidocaine. Typically, you're avoiding the class 1A or class 1C antiarrhythmics, but you can start with lidocaine and then get on the phone with poison control and the toxicologist will walk you through other options if that's not working. One, can we just have a minute to thank the people that invented the digoxin antidote for just calling it Digibind and not coming up with some other confusing name? Because I really think there's room for more of that in pharmacologic drug development these days. If we're going to have sure. antidotes to stuff, just call it the antidote to the thing. Give it a cute name. Digibind, great. I just really appreciate them for that. But of note, once you give the Digibind, your level is still going to be the same because the Digibind, once it binds to the digoxin, that complex still gets measured positive by the assay. So you lose your ability to get an idea of where your digoxin level is after that. So you got to follow it along with poison control. Yeah, another great point and another reason to talk to your local toxicologist, but just remember your level is not reliable after you give that first dose. That is so true. Iron ingestions. These are things that we see when toddlers are taking in multivitamins. Postpartum patients have them at home and it doesn't take much, as little as 40 milligrams per kilo of elemental iron, which really is not very much in a small toddler to be considered a poisoning. Symptoms are going to be vomiting, GI irritation, 
and then a relatively normal stage where they're asymptomatic and you're thinking, it's probably nothing. And then you get that metabolic acidosis and maybe shock and renal and hepatic failure. So a low threshold for sending levels and uh, a very important piece of the history there. If what they got into was a multivitamin with iron in it, that's a critical piece of information to know. Especially in the age of gummy vitamins for prenatal vitamins or for kids, that's something that all of a sudden you can think it's a kid, they can get into it and they think it's just candy and they can get into a high dose pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And then the treatment modalities there are pretty terrible. <laughs> you've got supportive care, but you've got whole bowel irrigation to get rid of anything that hasn't been absorbed. And then iron chelation therapy with defaroxamine, uh, exchange transfusions, they get pretty invasive and pretty serious pretty quickly. So make sure you've got your toxicologist on board. Silver metal, though, for defaroxamine for the name of the drug, because you just stop and you think about it. Defaroxamine, just take the virus out of me. <laughs> get, it, get it out. I take too much. <laughs> there you go. For those of you who are listening and prepping for your boards, there's your mnemonic to try and remember. <laughs> He's Italian. <laughs> Opioids. All right. So we've talked about this even just a couple of months ago on the podcast, but opioid medications, especially the long-acting preparations, methadone, buprenorphine, and even the antidiarrheals like loperamide, right, can cause respiratory depression, central nervous system depression by affecting that mu receptor, and they can hang around a long time. So Naloxone is what you're going to give. If it's successful and the person relapses, you're going to be looking at starting an infusion that's usually about two-thirds of the reversal dose, and that can take a little while to mix up with pharmacy and can consume a lot of naloxone depending on how much they took and what the agent was. So just understand it can take massive doses, and if you're getting close to running out, as Dr. Eckler mentioned earlier, you might reach out to your disaster management or EMS personnel and see if they have some that you can use. Can I tell you that I've recently stumbled upon what I believe is a new golden truth that 0.1 meg per kilo is like what most medication is dosed at. So I was really joyful to find that Narcan is dosed at 0.1 meg per kilo, but I even was more excited that they listed all of my favorite ways of giving Narcan in this IV, intramuscular, intranasal, intraosseous, and yes, as a net. That's so just remember, you don't need any access to put Narcan into people, be they adults or children. You can give it into their nose or gently as a neb and wake them up just enough so that you know that they're alive and then you can figure out the rest. That's right. The naloxone nebulizer treatment is just as effective. Mm. Chef's kiss. And they wake up so <laughs> gently, they don't need to yell at you about Smooth. all the things that they want to yell at you about. <laughs> It's all about that, isn't it? Just not oh, getting beaten up by your patient exactly. as you're trying to save their life. <laughs> exactly. All right, salicylates. This is going to cause a syndrome that might involve hyperthermia, lactic acidosis, respiratory alkalosis, hypokalemia, and hypoglycemia. It's a known combination of symptoms, but the absence of those doesn't rule out the salicylate toxicity. The early symptoms that an adult patient might report include things like ringing in the ears, rapid breathing, or some GI upset. You're probably not going to pick that up, honestly, in a little child. Again, history is everything in this sort of scenario. If there's any concern, you're going to be sending that level. The decontamination here includes multiple things, like activated charcoal, if the timing is correct, whole bowel irrigation, if necessary, for long-acting preparations, and urinary alkalization which again can be guided by your local toxicologist or by the poison control center, but is going to require the administration of sodium bicarbonate in some kind of dextrose solution, typically even with some potassium. There is some examples of that in the article that you can read, but again, you're going to be consulting your poison control center for help with most of that. Indications for hemodialysis in these patients include severe refractory acidosis, hypotension, end organ damage, or neurologic impairment. Next up on the list is sedative hypnotics, so things like benzodiazepines. These are a class of agents that are going to give you sedation primarily as a side effect, so you're going to get ataxia, lethargy, coma, and eventually respiratory depression. And the overdose is managed primarily with supportive care, airway, breathing, circulation. But flumazenil certainly is a medication that's available to you in the emergency department. It is a competitive inhibitor at the GABA receptor, 
and can be used as a reversal agent in certain scenarios. Interestingly, the authors say never in the emergent setting, primarily because the flumazenil is going to block GABA receptors. And if there's any propensity to seizures, then now you have a seizing patient who has the primary receptor for treatment blocked. And so there's always concern about causing refractory seizures after giving this medication. But in the right hands, in the right scenario, maybe even guided by your toxicologist, this can certainly be something that can be given to a patient who has a sedative hypnotic or a benzodiazepine overdose. Kids are a great population for these. It's really worth keeping that in mind that like adults, not as reasonable, but kids. Yeah, that's a great point. It, typically, we're avoiding using this in adults because we're just not sure if this person is a chronic user of sedative hypnotics and we don't want to put them in the full-blown withdrawal and cause a seizure and then not be able to treat it. That's very unlikely to be the case in children unless they have some kind of developmental abnormality or history of seizures or something that requires them to be on this class of medication. Absent that history, flumazenil is certainly an option in the pediatric population, but I highly encourage you to talk to a toxicologist at that point if you're thinking about administering that medication. Sulfonylureas is the last class of medication that we'll talk about. And of course, it's something you give to somebody who has diabetes, typically type 2 diabetes, and it has a long-lasting effect, which peaks two to six hours after initial medication ingestion, but can last up to 24 hours and can present with some pretty profound hypoglycemia. And so most of these patients are getting observed for 16 to 24 hours certainly overnight and on the peds floor with frequent checks of their blood glucose to make sure that they're doing okay and they're not getting hypoglycemic. Treatment is just replacement of dextrose until the medication is fully metabolized, and that's done through some kind of IV infusion. Glucagon, interestingly, is usually not recommended because of its short half-life and rebound effect and the possibility of inadequate glycogen stores, but it can be useful as a temporizing measure while you're waiting to get IV access. One other drug that I wanted to cover that I feel as though is rare but is starting to become more prevalent is treatment for narcolepsy, is gamma-hydroxybutyrate. Usually the older drug is called Zywave and the newer drug is called Zyrem, both starting with an X. They're basically liquid GHB. People are using this for narcolepsy to help them sleep at night with the issues they have with sleep. But again, it's a liquid that would be something that kids could get into depending on what was stored in, depending on where it was. So a kid that comes in sedated and you're looking for another solution, that might be another thing to add to the list of medications you're asking the parents about. Does anyone have narcolepsy? Does anybody take any medicines for narcolepsy? It's just another thing to, to add to your armament of questions to ask to try to figure out these really challenging mm -hmm. overdose cases. Yeah, absolutely. And again, poison control, very helpful in that scenario if you identify it and are just wondering. Most of the time, it's supportive care, but certainly identification is the primary difficulty there. One thing to keep in mind that is not a medication, but frequently available in multiple households, is the laundry detergent pods. That's been a huge problem in emergency departments and for poison control centers across the country. Those packets started becoming available in 2012 and led to a pretty rapid increase in the number of exposures in the pediatric population, over 17,000 in the first year after introduction. And despite our best efforts to lock those in containers and encourage parents and provide air education and put all kinds of labeling on the containers, that number hasn't really changed. It's still about that many visits a year in emergency departments. Overall, the data has shown that exposures are typically minor. Only about 4% are hospitalized and only around 7% have a bad outcome. The main routes of exposure are typically ingestion. There can be ocular exposure, dermal exposure, and features following ingestion. So things that might alert you to this particular kind of ingestion include vomiting, that's the most frequent, then coughing and respiratory depression, and then esophageal or gastric injury, and CNS depression, along with metabolic acidosis and hyperlactatemia. So if that lactic level comes back critically high and you're not sure if this is truly infectious, you might ask about laundry pot exposure. You might see some of that colored fluid in their mouth. Just know that this is a very dangerous exposure and that there are still over 10,000 exposures a year that are leading to poison control center calls in ages five and below. So that's a very important exposure to keep in mind. I'm coming for you, detergent companies. 
<laughs> these pods are not that important. Get rid of them. You can just put liquid into your washing machine. That's what I do because I have three kids and I don't want pods in my house. There you go. There are alternatives. If you have young children, that's some good advice to heed right there. Just keep that in mind. We didn't talk about street drugs, but again, there's a great discussion of that. Fentanyl, xylazine, ketamine, K2, and spice, all of those things can also cause problems when ingested. But for brevity, just know that's all discussed in the article. It's, again, an amazing article. Kudos to the authors. Just keep in mind that history is going to be critical in the vast majority of these cases to try and guide you to what exactly was ingested. And please remember that number, 1-800-222-1222 for your poison control center nationally in the United States. And that's a wrap for this episode of the podcast. Again, that was the December 2023 Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice article on the management of toxic ingestions in the pediatric population. Thanks again to Dr. Kanak, Dr. Tarango, and Dr. Liu for authoring this wonderful article. I highly recommend you go read it and keep it in your back pocket and get that CME. Also, this month, there is an article in Emergency Medicine Practice on hypotension, all of that available to you at ebmedicine.net, along with the clinical pathways for these articles. The webinar for holiday heart syndrome was awesome. Highly recommend as we head into holiday heart season. Fantastic. And that's it for me. TR, say goodbye. Hey guys, thanks again for listening. Have a great holiday. Stay safe and get rid of your laundry pods. That's right. <laughs> Until next time. Bye-bye, everybody. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Don't forget ebmedicine.net for all your CME needs and all of those interactive pathways that you can use while at work. And we will see you in 2024. Happy holidays, everyone.